Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you today. Spring is approaching. One of these days you'll be back in your Bermuda shorts or whatever. Mowing the grass. Hey, turn to Matthew chapter 18. We are studying the sermons of Jesus in Matthew. And uh, there are other sayings of Jesus that don't fit in these five sermons in Matthew. But we're studying these because there's a little marker at the end of each of the sermons, something to the, to the nature of uh, what you see in chapter 19, verse 1, where it says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, so on and so forth. So Matthew gives us that marker all five times at the end of these so-called sermons that we have. And we don't know whether uh, Jesus actually addressed uh, this all at one time in just the way Matthew gives it to us or whether Matthew took uh, sayings of Jesus and and collapse them into these five sermons for us. But we know this, that Matthew is saying that wherever we go around the world, we're to make disciples of all nations. So all ethnic groups in Memphis are to be discipled, and we're to teach them everything that God has commanded us. And what are those things? Well, we believe Matthew is showing us what those things are in these five sermons. The first sermon is probably the most classic one of all, the Sermon on the Mount. We studied all fall chapters 5 through 7, where Jesus teaches us the character of a real follower of Jesus. What does that person look like? And it's not what one would expect if one had a Jewish religious uh, training and and background. The second uh, sermon we saw was the Sermon on Mission, and that's in Matthew chapter 10. And there we saw that Jesus sends us out with the same ministry that he had, as he says in, in John's gospel, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And he sends us out, Luke tells us two by two, to carry on the same ministry that he carried on. And we were shown in that sermon that we'll be facing the same kind of opposition he faced. And he showed us how to do that. The third sermon, I think maybe I said ours today is the third, it's actually the fourth. The third sermon was Matthew 13. We just finished last week. And there we had seven parables on the kingdom. Jesus was teaching us something about the nature of the kingdom. It's going to require patience. It's going to require deep discernment to see what's going on. It's invisible to the eyes of the worldling, but may manifest to us in Christ. And we know what's going on in the kingdom. We can see something that one apart from Christ cannot see. And this kingdom looks very small, he said to them, like a mustard seed. But it's growing into a mighty, mighty tree under which many Um, peoples of the world will find refuge and safety and security and provision and so on. And uh, just as it's hidden like leaven, it's suffusing the entire world. It's going everywhere. That's exactly what's been happening since the days of Jesus Christ. So these three sermons are vital for our discipleship. If we're going to walk with Jesus, we need to be clear on what it means in terms of our character and the way we think and the way we speak and the way we operate as Christians. It's crucial for us to see that we too are on mission. If you're in Christ, you are on mission. He says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And speaking of mission, let me just introduce a really good friend of mine, Raju Abraham. Raju, just hold up your hand here. Raju is from... uh, Those of you from second uh, know Raju because he's one of our beloved uh, missionaries. But Raju serves in uh, Uttar Pradesh, India, in uh, Kachwa, which is near Varanasi, if you you know India. 
and uh, has an uh, unbelievable ministry there. If you, ever get a, if you ever get an invitation from Raj, you take it. The only problem is he's up around 3 in the morning, so he won't get to sleep very long, and he'll put you to work too if you go over there. I can tell you from personal experience. So he's up this morning just not, not because he's jet-lagged, but because he's up. He's probably done half his day's work by about 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Raju, we welcome you. Hey, Bill, thanks for playing the piano this morning. You're not bad at that, buddy. That's good. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Let's give Bill a hand, of course. <laughs> thanks, Bill. So chapter 10 was on mission. Chapter 13 on the kingdom. You've got to understand the kingdom because if you don't, uh, you're going to be reacting wrongly to the kingdoms of this world. You're going to be very impatient. You're going to try to take things in your hand and control them. You're going to try to shape everything in this world as though this was the kingdom of Christ. No, king, God's kingdom is hidden. It's suffused through everything. It's making its way toward a grand conclusion. Got to understand the kingdom. Now, we come to chapter 18 for the fourth major sermon that Matthew prepares for us from the lips of Jesus. This one, too, is vital. It's essential to the Christian life. It is a sermon on community. And, brothers, uh, we live in a very individualistic society. Uh, We are children of the Enlightenment, and every man's an island, and the great frontiersmen, and all these visions we have of what a real man is, man who stands on his own. The rest of the world basically doesn't see human beings like that. We define ourselves as individuals and then by inference what group we belong to. The rest of the world generally defines us by what group we belong to, and then we might talk about us as an individual. And certainly in the days of Jesus, that is the way that life was perceived. We belong to groups, to clans, to tribes, to families, and then, of course, to nations. And what we're being taught about our discipleship is when we become Christians, we become members of a new nation. We become members of a new family so that we have to train ourselves how to think in terms of our closest affinities and our closest loyalties. Where are these? They've got to shift. If they've not shifted in your life, you've not yet come to know Christ as he is because Christ has brothers. And when you come to Christ as your brother and Savior, you also accept his family as your brothers. And it's a, it's a very decisive change. I, I, since I became a Christian as a, an adult when I was 25, I remember very distinctly these changes because I'll tell you the truth, I didn't like you folks very much before I got converted. I mean, I, I had a certain level of respect for you. I knew you probably ethically better than most people, but I didn't want to go on a vacation with you. You know what I mean? Uh, you weren't my closest friends. And I distinctly remember the experience of being converted not just to Christ, but being converted to the church. There are about three conversions that really take place. Your relationship with God through Christ, that's the most important and central conversion that takes place. Then you're converted to the church, and then you're converted to the world in a certain sense. You're converted to be a missioner and a servant to the world. And that's, that middle conversion, that social conversion, is extremely important. And you'll notice that one of Jesus' five sermons the one that Matthew picks out to disciple people is this. And when you get to the end of Matthew where Jesus says, uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That is, including them in the church. So part of our discipling the nations is to include them in the family. And they take on all the family privileges and they, take all the, they also take the family obligations. And part of discipling someone or being discipled, 
is to teach someone the obligations as well as the privileges that devolve upon us as followers of Christ, the obligations of the family. And we have to be taught this because we do fine as long as someone in the church is a lot like the kind of people we liked before we became Christians. You know what I mean? There there are a lot of people in the church that you like because you naturally liked them anyway before you were converted. The real test of our character here is how we're learning to love our family members that we would not really have associated with very much before our conversion. There's the real test for you. And Jesus is going to show us how we do this. And, and we're going to see later on in chapter 18, he deals with some really heavy stuff. Like what do you do when someone's defrauded you, stolen from you, in the family? What do you do when someone's lied to you? What do you do when someone's flirted with your wife? I mean, I'm talking about heavy stuff here. You're going to get to it. Jesus shows us exactly what we do in this family to keep ourselves reconciled through the worst kind of problems. And then what do you, what do, you do when someone sinned against you so badly you don't think you could ever forgive them and you kind of feel like you'd lose your manhood if you did forgive them? Jesus is going to show you how to deal with that too. you got to. Because this family, its relationships run so deeply into the very soil of Christ himself that there's not anything that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's not anything that can separate us from each other either. So we're going to take the worst-case scenarios, and we're going to show how Jesus has got a solution for this because when he tells us we are members of this family, he means what he says. And we've got to learn how to be good family members. The problem is, of course, all of us have problems in our own family backgrounds, even, even the ones of us who had the happiest family memories, and were treated wonderfully well. You still had sin in your family, and you've got blind spots. We have to relearn family. Now, where Jesus starts is extremely important. It's just like marriage. You want to know what your biggest problem in marriage is? You! (laughs) Of course, you're it. (laughs) Now, the wonderful thing about that is we've got solutions for that. If your problem is somebody else, well, you might fix it, you might not. But if your problem is you... That you've got a big advantage over everybody else. When the problem is you, you can fix that by God's grace. Well, the biggest problem in, in the Christian family, for your sake, is you. You're the biggest problem in terms of your relationships within the church of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly where Jesus starts. Where, what problem do we need to solve first? You. We can get you right. Then we can set you up to do your part to be reconciled to anybody in the body of Jesus Christ. But we've got to get you fixed. And the you is the worst one to get fixed right here is moi. I've, I've told you all this story before, but, you know, preachers don't like to preach messages on humility. It's very convicting to ourselves. And preachers aren't known to be the most humble uh, race of people. Uh, but I remember one time I was preaching a sermon on humility. This was 20 years ago. And one of the deacons, he, he was a recovering alcoholic. They're always very honest. You know what I mean? You AA guys, you all... You know, my name is Sandy Wilson, I'm an alcoholic, and you are too. I mean, that's kind of the way it goes, you know, in AA. So this guy walks up to me after that message on humility. He says, boy, that was a great sermon, Sandy, especially considering that's not your long suit. <laughs> Good point. Okay. Uh, let's look at the text, verses, uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. And this is how you start in community. You start with yourself and your biggest problem. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, 
He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You know, every once in a while, Jesus ought to just say what he means. You know what I mean? Wow. Okay. That's enough for today right there. I'm telling you. you, By the time we get through looking at the meaning of these verses, you'll say, that was enough for today, Pastor. Uh, let's look at the first verse. And here we're going to learn that here's what we're being taught. You and I seek human greatness. That's just the way it is. Every man seeks human greatness. Now let's look back for just a moment and think why this might be. I mean, here you've got the disciples coming to Jesus and they're asking him who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And the interesting thing is I I put several references here on your handouts, at least four instances there, other instances where they asked this question or one of their mamas asked the question. You want to be great and your mama wants you to be great. Uh, I mean, there's a big conspiracy here for greatness. And the interesting thing is if you looked up those references I've given you there, you'll find uh, in most cases... The concern about greatness arises right after Jesus has said he's going to go die on the cross for us. Can you imagine that? Here's Jesus pouring out his heart, describing what he's going to do for us to be absolutely humiliated for us. And our first concern, hey, can I sit on your right hand when you come into your kingdom? (laughs) That's... It's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's, it's terrible that no matter what's going on in this world, no matter what kind of human suffering is going on, we got one concern, big me. And in one case, in Luke's version, you've got it right at the end, get this, of the Lord's Supper. When they're sharing the Last Supper together, then they ask him, who's going to be on your right and left hand? Who's the greatest? It's amazing how this just runs through our mind. We're all seeking to make a dent in this world. We all want to make a difference. We all want to have a claim of some sort or another. And some of you say, oh, no, I'm, I'm a quiet man. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You just want people quietly to boast about you uh, in a very humble way. You know, I'm, I'm always entertained when at the Oscars, you know, people come up and get their award and they, they come to the mic and say, I'm so humbled. Oh, yeah, you're really humble right now. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, what do you mean you're humble? People don't even know what humility is. Uh, we're all seeking greatness. It's, it's in the disciples' lives, their whole career with Jesus until Pentecost, when they finally understand what greatness is. But here Jesus is teaching them. Now, here's where it comes from. Of course, it comes from sin. But think about creation itself. When we were made, we were made in the image of God. And remember the, in the uh, 
Israelite mind, the only ones who were made in the image of God was the Egyptian Pharaoh from whom they had just escaped because the Egyptians were taught only Pharaoh was made in the image of God. He was, he was near deity. Moses is telling everybody, no, guys, you all are the ones that are in, made. Every human being is made in the image of God. You're the kings and queens, uh, the Pharaohs of this world. So when we were made, we were made as Pharaohs. We ruled. We were to govern the entire earth. Everything that God made was to be under our dominion. I mean, think about it. We were the kings of the universe. We ruled it all with Christ. And not only that, but you, you have the account in Genesis 2 where we regularly chatted with the creator of the universe. We were close friends. <laughs> I mean, my buddy is the one who made everything. We walked together in the cool of the evening in the gar- palace garden. So look, we, we, we were great. And so that's in our DNA, the, 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 the experience of greatness. It's in our history, our DNA's history. And so there's, there's, there's a recall there in humanity that we're made for greatness. The problem is that when we fell and this entire world fell, this is no place to be seeking greatness. If you're seeking greatness here, you're just trying to be the chief thief, you know, uh, of the band. Uh, this place has been condemned. It's, it's no place to find your greatness. And until we're converted in Christ and we realize where the kingdom is and what it is and what we're striving for, we still try to work out our archetypal greatness here in, on this planet in this world as it is. That's the problem. So we were made for greatness, but we have to be restored to true greatness. And that's the problem, apart from the conversion in Christ, we're seeking it in the wrong way. Uh, and it leads to really absurd attempts uh, for greatness in this world it, and all kinds of buffoonery. Uh, here's something that I uh, heard about uh, an entry in John Wesley's journal uh, from a friend of mine. <clears throat> and he, he says that Wesley one day was to preach to the king and his court. And in preparation to go out into the public to do so, Wesley was in the same place getting prepared as the king was when he was getting dressed and made up and everything and being prepared for his public appearance. So they were actually in the same room together. And this was Wesley's account in his own journal when he got back to his his study. He said, I was in the robe chamber adjoining to the house of lords when the king put on his robes. His brow was much furrowed with age and quite clouded with care. And this is all the world can give, even to a king? All the grandeur it can afford? A blanket of ermine around his shoulders, so heavy and cumbersome, he can scarce move under it? A huge heap of borrowed hair with a few plates of gold and glittering stones upon his head? Alas, What a bauble is human greatness. And even this will not endure. Isn't that great? He saw the most powerful man of his day. Total bauble. Just human buffoonery trying to be great. Well, Jesus is uh, teaching us here uh, by quoting what we once said to him, that we all seek human (laughs) greatness. 
Jeremiah, you remember, said to his assistant, he said, you seek greatness, seek it not. Now, if we look at verses 2 through 6, the rest of, the, of our text for today, <clears throat> we see that Christ teaches something very different than human greatness in this life. He teaches human weakness. Christ teaches human weakness. You know how much I enjoy 2 Corinthians. You've heard me speak of it before. And the reason is that in that great letter, Paul is under attack. And being under attack, uh, he shares his heart. He's, he's under attack. He's suffering. And his deepest core convictions come out. And I've listed a couple of texts here that show how Paul embraces this idea of weakness. He says in 2 Corinthians 4 5, this is page 2228. 2228, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So we do not proclaim ourselves. We are not putting ourselves over uh, uh, forward. We are proclaiming Christ as the Lord. And you know, John the Baptist showed us the only way you can have him increase is if you decrease. He will increase and I will decrease. The only possible way you can lift up Christ is if you go down. Now, you're going to go up later. Remember, we are going to be exalted in due time. So Peter tells us, humble yourselves before the Lord. He will lift you up in due time. Now is not the time. The problem with seeking greatness in this world is you got the wrong time in the wrong place. So you humble yourself in a broken world, in a broken humanity, which we are, and you wait for him to exalt you later. So Paul says, we do not proclaim ourselves. That'd be a waste of time. We proclaim him as Lord, and we proclaim ourselves as your servants for his sake. So we have, it looks like two things we can proclaim. He's the Lord, and we are his servants, just like John the Baptist. He increases, we decrease. That's our message. And that's exactly what's, what needs to take place. And it takes place in the Apostle Paul's life. And then you can turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And you see that Paul here is talking about how uh, so many uh, of the false apostles boast about who they are and what they can do. And Paul is simply saying, I, I, I don't boast in any of these things. I boast only in Christ. And he, he says uh, in verse 7, this is at page 2238. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had had, a thorn was given me in the flesh. We don't know exactly what this is, but he calls it a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So what... Paul said he heard from the Lord was, as he was praying to be delivered from whatever this thorn in the flesh was, we don't know if it was a physical disability, an emotional disability, or perhaps even a spiritual disability, something that was painful to him. He pled with the Lord, I'm sure with tears. Three times he went before the Lord. And the message he got back is, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's not about you, Paul, and it's not about your having a great life or a pain-free life. Here's what's important. 
that my power is displayed through you. And the Lord is saying to the Apostle Paul, you know what, Paul? I display my power not through the strength of men and not through their greatness. I display my power through their weakness. And then look what Paul goes on to say. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see this? Here is the irony. Don't expect an unconverted friend of yours to get this. What everybody in this world thinks is when I'm strong, I'm strong. And when I'm weak, I'm weak. The kingdom of God reverses everything. When I'm weak, I'm strong. Why? Because that's when the alien power, the power extrinsic to my natural being, is being asserted through me. Is when I'm emptied of my own natural strength and power, then the supernatural power of Christ rests upon me and works through me. It's very scary because we've been taught all of our lives to rest upon our competence, upon our physical strength, upon our ability to intimidate people, everything that we use in this world. We've been taught that's human power. That thing, that's what changes things. What Paul's saying, no, just the opposite. It's through my weakness that things get changed when I'm looking to him for his power. It's, it's impossible for anyone to understand this apart from Christ. But Christ is teaching us a human weakness. Now, let's look at verses 3 and 4 for a moment. And here we see that in order to do this, we must become childlike. We must become childlike. A, verses 3 and 4. Now, when I think of children, I think of, I mean, I'm charmed. Children... Charm me very easily. I, you know, one of, I've told you one of my favorite things to do is just stand out there in the narthex or in the connector uh, after church, and there, there are about a dozen kids that just love to come up and hug the pastor. Man, I'm telling you, it's one of the greatest privileges of my life. There are those little ones. I've got friends in this congregation, brothers, friends. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, just last Sunday night, uh, I was sitting there over by myself, uh, you know, on the... On the uh, east side of the sanctuary up toward the front, and one of our little kids comes up to me. I won't tell you who it was. He's probably three or four, and he comes up and he hugs me. And, uh, and I, I just grab him and I say, you know, now, I'm glad you're sitting right in front of me because I'm going to have my eyes on you the whole service. And he said, Pastor, I'm going to have my eyes on you because I love you. And then he says, I'm sitting there going, oh, well, yes. <laughs> and uh, up to half my kingdom. What do you want, son? Uh, so, and then he says, and then he says, Pastor, would you close your eyes? I closed my eyes and he kissed me right there and then got down and walked off. Now, that's what I think about when I think of kids. Uh, they're adorable. But that's not what Jesus is thinking about. <laughs> yeah, uh, you can see in your footnotes, uh, the ESV study Bible, that you have these three things mentioned, that children are trusting, they're vulnerable, and they're dependent. They're trusting, they're vulnerable, and they're dependent. So uh, a lot of times when we talk about, you know, you really need to become like a child, well, you do. You, you, these things are, are important. Uh, you need to trust just like uh, 
children in a healthy family trust their parents. They trust them to feed them, to care for them, to look out for them, uh, to love them in every way. You've got to be vulnerable. Kids know they're vulnerable. They can't provide for themselves. They can't pay the light bill. They can't put food on the table. They're completely vulnerable and dependent. And adults don't operate like this. So I want to say I'm in agreement with your footnotes. But I think, given this context, I really think Jesus is making a little bit different point about children. Not to deny these three things that are in your footnotes, but I think there's, I think bullseye is just a little bit over in another place. In Jesus' day, you have to understand that children were not considered very important. Uh, just like I told you what a charming thing it is uh, to make friends with children and for them to know you and love you. We are charmed by that. And you, you grandparents, I mean, you're putty, you know, you get around your, your grandchildren. This is all true, especially in our day. But in Jesus' day, there was another way of looking for children. They weren't important, and they certainly were not worthy of your time. So you would either have your wife take care of them, or if you're a wealthy family, you'd actually have somebody else take care of your children. You wouldn't put your time in on it. That was typical. I'm not saying that's what you should have done or what they should have done. I'm just saying that's generally the way it was. They were considered low. They were considered very low on the social scale in terms of value and importance. I mean, to us, we talk so much today about our children, it's hard to imagine. But that was the view. So here's what Jesus is saying. You want to be great, then be the opposite of great. You want to be famous, be the opposite of famous. You want to be well-known, be the opposite of well-known. You want to be on the top of the ladder, get on the bottom of the ladder. That's really what he's saying. So I don't, for, once again, I don't think it denies these things, trusting, dependent, uh, and, and vulnerable. It's just not the main point. The main point is get as low as you can. Let me, let me just quote uh, a famous father in the, in the church, Chrysostom, a wonderful preacher who was preaching at, on one occasion to the imperial Roman court. Okay, so he's got all the... Uh, senators and all the important nobles in front of them. He was a very famous preacher, kind of like the Billy Graham of his day. So he was invited to the imperial court, just like John Wesley was invited uh, to the House of Lords. And here's what he said on this text. He said, if you are in love with precedence and the highest honor, pursue the things in last place. Pursue being the least valued of all. Pursue being the lowliest of all. Pursue being the smallest of all. Pursue placing yourselves behind others. Can you imagine a sermon like that in our Congress? Wouldn't that be interesting? Pursue the lowliest place. Pursue the place of service. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said at one point in his life, the church does not need brilliant personalities, but faithful servants of Jesus and the brethren. And indeed, that's exactly what we need. Jesus is saying, you must take the low place and pursue it 
with everything in your heart. Those of you who have been around a while, who have a place that is recognized in this city, you've got to try even harder because people are trying to put you up and forward and you're always looking to go down this way. And it's something that's regularly cultivated. That's what Jesus is saying. This is the way to true greatness. Now let's notice in verse uh, verses 3 uh, especially that this requires repentance. Unless you turn and become like children. So we must turn. The word turn is just the word for repent, uh, one of the words for repentance. The Hebrew word for repentance is shuv. And shuv just means to turn. So I'm walking this way, following these gods, this lifestyle. I turn and follow Christ. So I'm drawn to him, and being drawn to him, I'm repulsed by everything that would take me in the opposite direction. So I turn because I'm drawn to him. And I turn and walk away from this kind of greatness to this kind of greatness. And if you're seeking greatness in Christ, look at how he won it. He won his greatness through the cross, taking the lowest conceivable place in society. So this requires great repentance. Let me just read to you something that will be familiar to a number of you. It's in Lewis's uh, Mere Christianity. And you remember uh, uh, Chuck Colson said that when he got converted, it was really this chapter in Mere Christianity that converted him through uh, his encounter with Tom Phillips at Raytheon. Uh, and here's, here's part of what Lewis says. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking of is pride. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest, It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. 
A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And, of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. You know how Jeremiah puts it? He says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the the wealthy man boast in his wealth. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the God who practiced steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. So pride is the greatest enemy of your soul. It was the first sin, the most pervasive sin, and the most powerful sin that we have. Jesus is addressing it here. If you're going to build community, if you're going to be a good family member, you've got to tackle pride. This requires repentance. Now notice... Secondly, that uh, this teaching brings great consequence. This brings great consequence. First of all, he says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven without this. So entrance into the kingdom. Now, we've, we've run across this kind of phrase before in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, unless your righteousness. Your right, practical righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, those that, are, those that are perceived to be the most righteous ones in the world. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And, of course, he shows us why ours does exceed because this is a hypocritical righteousness. It's a self-righteousness. It's only concerned with externals and with reputation. Whereas real righteousness is concerned with one's giving glory to God. Here he's showing us how we do that. We are renouncing pride. And that is the only way in in which we can enter the kingdom of heaven. You notice, secondly, that he shows us that one of the consequences is greatness in the kingdom. You want to know how we achieve greatness? It's through taking the lowest place. Martin Luther King had a great comment on this one time. Dr. King said, everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. How true it is. You don't need a college education to be great. You simply need to become like a child and the humility that goes with a child. This is the reason Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that we studied, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek, lowly, inheriting the universe. And that's how they're blessed. And they know it. They know their day is coming when he will exalt them in due time. Now, let's look. uh, Here I'd like to just mention three reasons for humility that can help us. If we want to say, well, look, Wilson, I'm just as bad as you are. I'm, you know, I want to put myself forward and I want people to think well of me and I kind of think well of myself. You know, I'll give them a head start. I'll help them out. If they don't, they don't have reasons to think well of me, I'll give them plenty. Uh, 
Wilson, I'm kind of like you, so what do I do? Well, let's just think about three things we can contemplate. And these are three things to contemplate. First of all, we are creatures. And Paul says in Romans 9.20, Does the potter have no rights over the clay? You're clay. You're made out of the dust. Only reason you exist is because the deity breathed life into dirt and made you. You came from dirt and you're going to return to dirt. How's that? That's a pretty good start, isn't it? A big clod of dirt that God breathed life into. That helps when you start thinking about yourself as being so intelligent, so charming, so good looking, so skilled, so successful, so prominent. Just remember, you're a big piece of dirt. All right. They got life breathed into it. Secondly, you're a bad piece of dirt. Uh, we are sinful creatures. So you were made by him. He breathed life into you. You had nothing to do with it. Uh, I mean, take just your birth. What did you have to do with that, gentlemen? What did you have to do with even humanly, of getting yourself into this world, nothing. And God's the one who made you. And now once you're made, what do you do with your maidness? What do you do with your privileges that he has uh, given to you, unworthy though you are? What did you do? You spit in his face. And that's the reason that when Jesus tells about a truly justified man, a man who gets it, it's a man who says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's the way he defines himself. How does the Pharisee do it? How does the religious person do it? Oh, Lord, I go to communion every week. Lord, I tithe. Lord, you know I'm trying to evangelize people. Lord, you know I haven't defrauded my company. You know I paid my taxes last year. We, we got this long list of things. And that's the way the self-righteous man tries to justify himself. And Jesus tells the parable, no, the justified man is a man who knows he's a creature who rebelled against his creator. And he has no rights. He has no claim to justification. He, has, he, he knows he has no ticket to heaven. He has nothing to commend himself. You need to cultivate the awareness of the outrageous character of your sin. The outrageous character of your sin. And you know when Isaiah had his vision of the Lord high and lifted up and the, the uh, seraphs were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the, 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 the doorposts and the threshold shook in the presence of God. You know, then, then Isaiah rose up and said, You know, God, now that you're here, I just want to complain about these other sinners in this community. No. What did, what did Isaiah do when he got God's attention or when God got his attention? He said, Damned am I. Woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And he was a preacher. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There was one sinner Isaiah was aware of. It was himself. And if you're aware of God as creator and sovereign over the world, there's only one sinner who gets your attention every day. The outrageous nature of one man's sins grieve you every day. It's your own. And it trumps everybody else's sin. The biggest problem you've got is yourself. And you're aware of that all the time. And so when someone says something kind to you, you truly appreciate it. That's what family members are supposed to do. They're supposed to encourage us. 
and to remind us of the little feeble things that we do every once in a while. But don't start believing your own press from faithful brothers who are trying to encourage you. Now, let's remember something. You're a man of unclean lips, and you dwell among a people of unclean lips, and you, the sinner, have beheld Christ, and you deserve to be turned into toast because of it. So we cultivate this. We're creatures, and we're rebellious creatures. Thirdly, we cultivate this thought. We are redeemed sinful creatures. So not only do we have nothing to do with our creation, God just made us out of the dirt. Secondly, having been made, we completely rebelled against him and surrendered all of our rights to justice. But then thirdly, we have been, we're like brands taken out of the fire. We were in the fire. We deserved to be burned up and we were rescued. It's very humbling, isn't it, to be rescued because you're, you know you're completely helpless. If you've ever been rescued, you know how it feels. You know you're completely helpless and then totally indebted to somebody else. And men don't like to be indebted to anybody. And yet when you become a follower of Christ, you realize I am totally indebted to the living God. And my whole salvation is very humbling because it shows how helpless I am and how hopeless I was apart from Christ. This is the reason that when Paul describes our salvation in Romans 3, if you really understand salvation, the only thing you contributed to it was the sin that made it necessary. And you get to the end of Romans 3, in chapter 3, verse 27, and what does Paul say? He says, so what happens to boasting? It's gone. There is no more boasting. You have nothing to boast about. All you contributed to this entire operation was your sin. And God contributed everything that was good and saved you in spite of yourself. It's very humbling. So you, you contemplate your creation, you contemplate your fall, and you contemplate your redemption. And if you'll keep those things in mind, it'll really help you from trying to rise up like a little ant in the universe who's trying to rule or as we have in the book of Judges, who is it that's willing to rule over everybody else? The bramble bush. Everybody else, the fig tree and the olive tree, they know they're too busy serving other people. But it's the bramble bush who's willing to rule. And so often that's the way it is. Sometimes you wonder, in our, the way we've set up our political campaigns today, what man in his right mind could ever be a president? You'd have to be half crazy to go through what they go through in the first place to get elected. And so we're encouraging bramble bushes. So, gentlemen, just stay low. Just stay low. That's the way to greatness. Now, notice uh, in verses 5 and 6, and we're, we're now on B on the outline, not only must we become childlike, but we must receive his other children. So he's, he's saying to us here, look, this is the way humility works. If you really have humility, you'll recognize that you're, you're really just like a child, not like a grown man. You're really the lowest, you're on the lowest seat in the feast, on the lowest rung of the ladder. And if you're really there, let me tell you what will happen. You will welcome everybody else who's the lowest rung on the ladder. You'll welcome everybody else who doesn't even have a seat at the feast. You're low, and so your friends will be those who are down here. If you keep putting yourself up, and we do this not only in the world, we do it in the church. 
And so we just take our prideful aspirations, some of us, and we just transfer them from the workplace to the church. We want to be recognized. We all want to be an officer. We want everybody to know that we're hot stuff, that, we, that we, we're perfect with our wives. <laughs> That's funny, isn't it? Yeah, it's funny. We want people to think these things about us. And so we just take all of our ambitions for greatness, transfer it from the world into the church, and we're still stuck with the same dadgum problem. So we have to keep cultivating, getting at the lowest place on the rung. And when you're down there, here's how you'll know it. You'll really welcome everybody on the low part of the rung. Here's what he's saying. Uh, He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. You want to know how you're really receiving Christ? You want to receive Christ as Savior? Here's how you'll know. When you receive the least of his little ones, his believers, his disciples, the ones in your family, they become your friends. Now you'll know. Here's another sign, uh, evidence of your conversion, that you are receiving Jesus Christ because you're receiving them, and you're receiving them because you've received Jesus Christ. And when you receive Jesus Christ, you, you gladly took your place at the lowest rung of the ladder, and you will gladly receive the others that are on the low rung of the ladder. And you'll notice, of course, in John 13, uh, the text that I mentioned here, Jesus shows us, us this in dramatic fashion before the Last Supper when he washes everybody's feet. And, and Peter is completely embarrassed because the way he was treating Jesus is, like we would typically think, anybody that's really great, they're going to be here at the top of the ladder and we're all going to wash his feet. And Jesus was showing them, no, it's just the reverse. The kingdom reverses things. And the truly great ones in the kingdom are the ones who wash the feet of the little ones. And Jesus was showing them, Peter was completely embarrassed by it. Jesus rebuked him, then Peter overreacted, as you remember. And then Jesus said to them, as you've seen me do to you, so do to one another. So he says, a servant is not above his master. A student is not above his teacher. So if you see me as teacher, then do as I do. So Jesus regularly was teaching his disciples, this is part of our conversion. This is part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now look, first of all, in verse 5, obedience brings great reward. Obedience to this whole idea of community that's built upon Humility. Community is built upon humility. You see what he's teaching? We, we can't get to this part in chapter 18 about confronting each other in sin until we've confronted our own sin, until we've taken the low place at the feast, until we've taken the lowest place in the community. You can't confront anybody. If you confront somebody from up here, that's not real Christian community. You have to confront them from down here as a lowly brother with them. This is the reason Paul says in Galatians 6, chapter 6, verse 1, to, do, to, to restore each other gently, lest you be tempted. So this is the reason for gentle restoration, because we're all down here at the bottom of the barrel. So get at the bottom of the barrel, and now you can have some effect. That's what Jesus is teaching. Obedience brings great reward. And you'll see uh, that that reward is him. You get Him. You receive Him. You enjoy Him. You have fellowship with Him. And you'll see in chapter 25 the famous parable about the sheep and the goats. He says, or I'm sorry, the, the famous parable about the talents in chapter 25. He says 
to him, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happiness. There's the reward. And he says later on, the sheep and the goats, you've, in, in as much as you've done this to the least of these, these little ones of mine, in as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren. So he's talking about the church. If you've loved these little ones of mine who are following me, you've done it unto me. So just as surely as Peter, James, and John could, could worship Jesus and show their affection for him by, by grabbing him and hugging him and devoting themselves to him, you can do the same with the least of the little ones in the church, the children, the handicapped, the weak and marginalized, the unpopular, the ones the world considers ugly or disqualified. There you have it. You can show your affection for Jesus Christ in the way that you love them. Because when you receive them, you are receiving him. These are his brothers and sisters. And you are receiving him. The reward is great for this obedience. Secondly, notice disobedience brings great punishment. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And I'll tell you, I told you about the little kids who come up to me on Sundays. And many times I'll walk from there, the connector, when I've hugged all these children, and I walk up to my office and I say, Lord, and I've prayed this prayer so many times, Lord, please kill me before I would ever lead one of those little ones astray. Please kill me. The last thing I'd want in my life is to lead one of these little ones astray by something I say or something I do by some act of unfaithfulness. Gentlemen, we have to remember the awesome character of being a great one in the kingdom, that we are the ones who are in the lowest place. Let me close with this. Uh, I can hear your notebooks. <laughs> it's amazing. I always tell people, you can tell when your talk is over, whether you keep talking or not. It's when the notebooks are clicking. Uh, but let's, let me read one more paragraph to you. This is, what, this is what Lewis says about the humble person. He says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Father, help us, for we are all proud men. And our desires for greatness have been warped and distorted by our flesh by this broken world in which we live and by the evil one who tempts us constantly to seek greatness in this world. We ask that you give us a much grander vision of greatness, of greatness with you reigning over this entire universe as brothers and sisters who are loved dearly by you, valued by you, empowered by you, exalted by you. And help us to wait patiently and humbly until our great day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you, gents.